Welcome to Let's Get to Work, a podcast with stories of hope and inspiration for people experiencing blindness and vision loss, as well as those wanting to support us. Brought to you by the Employment Committee of the American Council of the Blind, a place where we talk about all things employment, from finding jobs, holding jobs, building careers, and challenging stigmas. Each podcast will consist of interviews with two visually impaired people who have chosen to travel down unique career paths. Thank you for tuning in. Now let's get to work. So welcome to our first Employment Committee podcast. My name is Peter Altschul, and I'm about to start interviewing Brooke Jostad, our illustrious committee chair. Brooke, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, so I'm going to uh, sort of take you through your employment story. Uh, first, tell us what you do. So I am a clinical social worker um, at an agency in Colorado. I work with a caseload of about 45, 50 clients, um, a variety of adolescents and adults in a variety of issues, depression, anxiety, PTSD, eating disorders. And I work in both English and Spanish. So what prompted you to get interested in doing this work? Well, I, my first experience with knowing that I wanted to be a social worker was actually when I was 13. I was trying to figure out what to do for a class project and decided to do a fundraiser. So I got a bunch of middle school classes to fight over who could get the most um, coins in a jar and doing a penny war. And we raised money to get a washer and a dryer donated to a homeless shelter. At that point, I realized that I really wanted to work with people for the rest of my life. So I learned pretty early that that was where my skill set was. Started out getting a international studies degree, thinking that I was going to travel around the world. I don't really know what my plan was. I was 19. I think that's what my plan was. And realized quickly that 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 wasn't going to fit my skill set as well. Um, Traveling, especially with my visual impairment, I decided it'd be better to, to work in the country. Not that traveling is dissuaded, but it was going to work better with my skill set. So I got a degree in social work. And even then my plan was to do grant writing. And I started doing that and kind of stumbled into the therapist role. So we'll talk about the stumbling in a second. But can you talk a little bit about your upbringing? Tell, um, you know, where were you born? Uh, were you mainstream? Just give me a, a sense of, of your upbringing. Yeah, so I was born in Colorado. Um, I was born with an eye condition, bilateral microphthalmia, which basically means my eyes didn't develop. And I was mainstream. So my parents made the decision to send me to a public school, which I'm grateful for. Um, And I went through high school all locally in Fort Collins, Colorado, and then went out of state for college. I went to Baylor University in Texas and then back to Colorado for grad school. So before you went to college, what were the most valuable lessons you learned growing up? That's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, one lesson that I learned before going to college was that I had the opportunity to be creative with my disability. That I didn't have to fit into any kind of boxes just because of my disability. So I learned how to be creative. For example, that eighth grade project that I told you about, a lot of the kids in my class were doing artsy kind of things or fashion design. And I felt limited for a little bit until I realized that there were a lot of the other options I hadn't explored. So creativity became a really important thing for me. Another lesson I learned was um, to be okay with messing up and getting lost and not expecting myself to know all the answers quickly. Those are the first few things that come to my mind, but I'm sure that there are plenty of other lessons. I feel like I'm still learning so many things. 
Of course. And presumably you learned something about tech, assistive technology and mobility skills and all those things. Yeah. So I, um, I started off back when I was in elementary school and even, even high school, I would carry around a Perkins Braille writer from class to class. And I know that apart from getting a really strong arm from doing that, I also probably hurt some people in the hallways from hitting them. Uh, but so it's come a long way, but I started out just learning a lot of um, initial technology pieces. I was lucky in that my visual impairment was severe enough that no one argued that it was, that it was important for me to learn Braille early. I know a lot of people struggle with that because if they have any small amount of vision, they try to do the large print thing for a while, which works for a lot of people, but doesn't for other people. So I learned Braille early. I was always a cane user until I was 17 and got my first guide dog. And even still, I think I'm still a cane user. You know, that never goes away. Yeah. So. so you went to Baylor. You obviously moved away from home. Uh, and so talk about your college experience. Uh, did you know what you wanted to major in before you went to Baylor? No, I still wanted to, to be international major at that point. I went to Baylor. The main reasons I went to Baylor were they gave me money. My favorite musician was born in Waco, Texas, and I wanted to not be cold anymore. Who's your favorite musician? His name's Roy Hargrove. He's a trumpet player, and okay. he was born in Texas. No one in Texas knows of him, though, so that didn't work out so well. But I just wanted to be warm. <laughs> I didn't really know what else, and I wanted to be away from Colorado. Okay. So talk about your college experience. What did you learn? Uh, uh, did you get any jobs while you, while you were in Colorado, uh, in uh, Baylor? What, give, me a, give us a sense of your college experience. Yeah. So um, in college, I had one job working as a, um, a personal assistant for someone with physical disabilities. So doing cooking, cleaning, laundry, that kind of thing. Other than that, I did not work in college. And to be honest, when I was an undergrad, I had a pretty strong belief that because I was blind, I was going to have to take whatever I got and that I was going to have to settle, settle for whatever employment was offered to me. Um, so I didn't really look. I was, one of, I was in a discouraged kind of spot. I just focused on getting my degree, didn't ever try applying for um, cooking jobs in, in restaurants or coffee shops or anything like that, because I just always accept, assumed that I would never get them. So I, le I lived with that belief for quite a while. I had to prove that belief wrong after college. But in college, I just focused on studying. I had internships. I did volunteer things through church and other things like that. Um, but I focused on my studies and, and getting grades and traveling a lot, learning new um, self-taught mobility skills, because a lot of it is trial and error. And that was my main focus in, in undergrad. So tell me, tell me about your internships. I worked as a school social worker through um, a high school doing, um, helping kids that didn't have, weren't in economic advantage situations, access what they needed to, such as household supplies, food, that kind of thing. So just helping with basic resources and did some initial entry-level counseling with those kids. So my focus was all with adolescents. And were there any accommodations you needed to make, to make that job work? I needed time to learn the high school because I, a lot of what I had to do was go from room to room, classroom to classroom. Um, so there, that was that. That was an accommodation. I also needed to hire a personal driver because the way the bus system worked in Waco is you had to wave it down for it to stop. And so I would find myself waving at dump trucks and other things like that. Um, so I had to hire a driver, which was a little bit of a challenge economically, but it was the only way to make that work. And Voc Rehab was helpful in that capacity. Um, I also was able to convert a lot of the forms I needed to fill out for kids into a Word document and fill it out that way and get it encrypted and sent off because everything in that internship was still a paper and 
everyone else hand wrote everything. So I had to make that accommodation. And how were your supervisors when it came to that kind of, were they uh, providing those accommodations? In undergrad, my supervisors were really flexible and understanding. So you uh, got your degree Mm -hmm. uh, and your degree was in what? In social work. Social work. Okay. Yeah. And then, so then you went on to graduate school, right? Mm -hmm. Did you do anything between uh, college and grad school? I graduated on May 17th and I started grad school on May 20th. <laughs> I, I understand. Yeah, that's, that's, that's not. But I didn't do much of anything except move across the country. That's right. Where did you go to, uh, to grad school? Uh, back at my hometown, Colorado State University. Colorado State. Okay. Yeah. So you got your master's presumably in social work, I'm guessing. I did. Yes. Okay. And t- uh, talk about your experiences in, 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 in getting your master's. That was a different experience. Um, I attended what I like to call Construction State University, and, and it was every week there was new construction blocking my paths from my one place to another. So I felt, I remember calling one of my family members the second week of grad school saying, I can't do it. I can't even get to my classes. You know, they keep changing the paths. I can't get anywhere. Um. I made it work. I had to kind of swallow my pride and rely on um, some of the disability services more as far as transportation to and from buildings, um, working with people to help me with my passing. I didn't have much time to practice routes before I got there because I moved across the country. So that part was challenging. Um, It was a one-year grad school program, so I don't remember much about the year because I was really busy doing school. And I also got my first job that year, um, doing a part-time, um, bilingual case management job at an agency in town. So I was busy. It was a lot of work. I had to learn to say no to things and also learn to accept help, which I was born way too stubborn. So that was a lesson for me. So that bilingual job you got as a uh, case manager, how did you get that job? I actually volunteered for them for about four summers before they hired me. So every time I would go home from undergrad, I would call them up and volunteer there. So instead of, because I was too nervous to try to get paid jobs, I just kept volunteering there and that turned into a paid job. And what, uh, what volunteer work did you do for them before they hired you? I translated some of their documents from English to Spanish. I made phone calls to their families, um, sat in on intakes with Spanish-speaking clients to help uh, interpret that information. So mostly my work was with the Spanish-speaking families there. All right. So that was sort of a, that volunteer experience was a lead-in for that job they they hired you for? Absolutely, yeah. So talk about the job that you did while you were doing doing full-time student work? So that job was a little more challenging as far as stigmas from my supervisor. Um, I, if I didn't, if I needed an accommodation, she would pretty much quickly remove the task from me. Um, so for example, if I couldn't access a paper form, her solution was to have someone else do that task. So I found that job to be pretty challenging for a while as I worked to essentially what felt like prove myself. Yeah. Um, ended up that because she didn't essentially want me to do a lot of the case management work because it involved changing things from paper forms to online forms and things like that, that I ended up getting into grant writing with them because that was something that was already online. So I approached her and asked her if I could be part of that team if she was if we were going to struggle with the job I was initially hired for so what I was hired for didn't really come to fruition but I worked with her to come up with another plan but it was it was overall a pretty challenging experience working there so how was it learning how to write grants I loved it I like making people give people money (laughs) that's a really unusual skill because most of us hate (laughs) raising money so good for you yes that's a good, good for you. So uh, how long did you work for, for that, for that agency, that, that agency as a grant uh, Two and a half, three years, I believe. Let me think. Yeah. Two, two and a half years. 
So you, you, you continued working for them after you graduated. I did. Yeah. I still was only, I only had part time there for quite a while. And ultimately I left for that reason that, um, I wasn't being offered full time. And the minute I found another job, I was offered full time, but I chose to to go to the other job. Imagine that. So, (laughs) so, um, going back to school for a second, was there an internship as part of your, uh, social work school? There was for grad school. Yes. I worked right. in an elementary school setting doing um, group support groups for elementary students with behavioral challenges. And how was that doing that? That was, work? I enjoyed that. Um, I realized that I have way too much energy for my own good. And a good way to deal with that is to work with elementary students. Um, I also did some grant writing with them as well. So I was dipping my feet into that. And what kind of accommodations did you need? Did you get? And how supportive were your supervisors there? My supervisors at that elementary school were very supportive. Um, Some of the accommodations that I needed um, were getting things in paperless form. So electronic ways that I could access. Also, a lot of it was working with the kids, teaching kids, okay, when you want to speak, you need to say your name first. Um, this is our assigned seating. It was a lot of front loading with the children and coming up with backup plans if they ran out of the room. So a lot of troubleshooting with the children and the teachers in that way. How did the children react to your blindness? They thought it was fun and interesting and they enjoyed that. The, and as a general rule, what I've found with children is they appreciate that the person working with them on their needs also has needs. Mm. And one of the things that I remember, one of the things that a kid said to me was um, when I allow the, I allowed a kid to do something for me. I think it was, it was something like, um, Hey, will you go turn on the the computer? Or will you go check the whiteboard? I don't remember what it was, but they said, this is one of the first times an adult has let me do something. So kind of, they like to feel that they're being collaborated with. That's of course, there's also a lot of taking advantage of <laughs> that goes with that, seeing what they can get away with. But that's that's just children. Well, that's that's part of the challenge, right? Yeah. Working with anybody, really, the, the whole challenge thing is a. Even with adults, they try to we try to get away with stuff, or just we're a little more sophisticated with, a little more sophisticated doing it sometimes. Right. Um, <laughs> so, so you you got your social work degree, your master's degree. You uh, presumably were still working for that uh, agency doing uh, uh, grant writing, it turned out. Um, what else were you doing, you know, besides that, w- that work? At that point, I got involved with the American Council of the Blind as well, and I started um, doing fundraising with their student division. So continued to take money from people, I guess. And... Um, after I got my degree, I decided to look into other jobs, and that's when I stumbled into being a therapist by accident. So talk about the stumbling. Well, I walked into an interview and um, showed him my new fancy degree and told him I wanted to work with kids. And essentially, I did not have experience to be a, th- a therapist for a residential child care facility. But... I had the will to learn. I had the credentials and he said, I seemed teachable. So he hired me and I was terrified. I I was about to work with pretty high risk um, youth offenders and youth in mental, pretty severe mental health situations. And I started working there full time and it was the most incredible experience of my life. Talk about the incredible experience. Well, I worked in an acute treatment unit, so worked with kids with suicidal thoughts, homicidal thoughts, um, kids with criminal histories, kids that weren't welcome at home for whatever reason. And I did individual and family therapy and group therapy all under supervision because I hadn't, I wasn't licensed at that time. I was getting my hours to be licensed. Sure. Um, yeah. And so talk about some of the um, the experiences you had, some of the kids you worked with. Uh, you know, what, what did you learn from the experience? I learned about the, imp- 
importance of planning ahead as much as possible. I learned about the, um, I learned so much about our mental health system. Um, I learned, I continued to learn that my blindness was an asset more than anything else, that my presence as someone with a disability and my ability to listen was more helpful than harmful to the population I was working with. Um, Can you say more about that? Like maybe give an example of how that worked out with a, a kid or a family? Yeah, I had a child who was going through chemotherapy and also transitioning male to female who said that they felt comfortable speaking to me because I wasn't looking at them and judging them. And now, while I'm sure other therapists in their past also weren't judging them, or I would hope they weren't, it it just made them feel more confident that I wasn't actually seeing them. And talk about the accommodations you needed for the, Actually, I have another question. You, they, uh, the, the person hired you on faith, right? You didn't have experience working with that population, doing therapy with that population. What do you think prompted him to hire you? Well, you know, I had backgrounds and internships and things with background experience. So um, I think what he claimed that the reason he hired me was that I seemed pretty open to learning, that my resume had indicated that I was pretty versatile and willing to put a lot of hours into developing as a professional. And he actually, he did state that the blindness was set me apart and he wanted more diversity in his agency. Good. Okay. So um, tell me how you got this current job that you're currently uh, So yeah, my current job, uh, unfortunately, after I want to say five years of working at the residential facility, um, we had to, that facility had to close due to lack of funding and which is a really big loss for our community and the kids and the families. So I started, I had um, six weeks notice to find another job, did a few interviews, got a lot of rejections and no callbacks and things. Um, Found this place that I'm working with. I was, I've never, I'd never been in an out, strictly outpatient facility yet at that point. But um, my first interview was such that I walked away thinking it wasn't going to turn into anything. He had said, first thing he asked me was, I, was I born that way? <laughs> and um, after that, we kind of had some dialogue, but he didn't seem in, terribly interested. But anyway, it ended up working out. And now I work there and I'm, I'm can, happy there. Can we back up for a second? I'm curious. Yeah. So when the person asked you, were you born that way? Last I checked, that was illegal. How did how did you respond? I said yes, and I said, okay. "Why are you asking?" And now that's very controversial. You don't have to do as I did, <laughs> but um, I didn't really want to come off defensive. I I knew, and now that I know him better, I know that came from a very genuine, confused place. And yes, it was illegal, and I've given him plenty of crap for it now, <laughs> but. In that moment, I wanted to be patient. Um, I got off the phone. I told my family and my friends, and they all were saying, why do you want to work somewhere like that? That's the bigoted place. It wasn't. It was genuinely a slip (laughs) out of confusion and being caught off guard. Yeah, But the place I work for is not that way. So it really taught me an important lesson to be patient with people. Yeah, no, that's 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 real. It's well, a lesson well worth for all of us paying attention to. I think. So, tell me about the work you do there. So, I I, I carry a caseload um, of adolescents and adults. Um, that was new as well, but with my social work background, that's the only um, Medicare will only, which is an insurance for generally older adults, will only accept licensed clinical social work therapists and not other licensures. So I was kind of told that that was going to be part of my job description. And I love it. I love working with different people from all walks of life. Um, I've enjoyed that. I work 
I have normal work hours now. When I was at the residential, I worked Wednesdays through Sundays for years, and now I get to work Mondays through Fridays. So that's pretty fun. And so, uh, when did yeah. you start? When did you start this job? I started last August. Okay, so presumably you started uh, working in person, right? You you went yes. to the office every day or whatever, and did did your thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk talk about the accommodations you 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 needed uh, when you started that job. Well, I could go on, but for time's sake, I'll try to be brief. the The biggest thing was when I stumbled into this job, the electronic health record system they used was completely inaccessible. There was no functionality. Now they've since changed that a little bit to allow for Microsoft Narrator, which comes with its own set of challenges. Yeah, exactly. But I've had to work a lot with my supervisor um, to help me get my notes in on a timely manner because I can't access the system. So what was the arrangement you ended up working out, out with her? So I've had to send the notes through Google Drive um, secured, and then they've had to paste them in. And now that it's somewhat accessible, they, they still have to open my scheduler for me because that part isn't accessible, but I can insert my own notes for the most part. Okay. So it's been a challenge. Yeah, so it sounds like uh, it's been... But it's getting better slowly, it sounds like. It's getting slowly better, and um, they're open. I was terrified to tell my supervisor that it was completely inaccessible because I had come in the interview saying, yeah, I have assisted technology that can do a lot of this stuff. And you know, a week after being hired, I had to say, actually, I can't see anything on your platform. That's not unusual, right? Right. Um, so you were working with your students, uh, sorry, your clients, uh, in person. And then the virus hit. Talk about the transition. So we've gone mostly to telehealth now. I still see um, a few people in person who just, for whatever reason, either economic constraints, um, no internet, etc., can't do remote sessions. So I still go in a couple days a week. But I, um, yeah, I use Zoom, other platforms. We have about five different ones we use. So that's all been fine as far as using my phone and my computer. Now I've had to learn how to work with kids all over again through a computer screen. So talk about that. What's different about that? Well, for one thing, a lot of the times they'll talk to you and then they'll set their computer down and run away. Oh. (laughs) And you just have to wait for them to come back or try calling them again. Um, So there's some of that. There's you know, a lot of resources I used to do with kids, you know, draw me a picture, that kind of stuff was a lot easier to do in person. And now having to be creative, because even if I can find uh, remote card games and things that work for sighted kids, they don't work for me. So I've had to be creative about using more YouTube videos and, and different kinds of things that I can access as well, because a lot of things that they can do, I can't. Sure. So talk about the drawing pictures piece. You're blind. You can't see pictures, presumably. Uh, how, does, how do you, use, how do you uh, integrate that into your work? You know, I've learned that it's really not about what I would see in the picture. It's about what they want me to see or what they are trying to demonstrate. So if I ask them to draw me a picture, I, of course, get really excited about it from a genuine place. And I sure. ask them to tell me, I ask different questions, you know, what's, What's in this corner? What does this mean? Tell me about these colors you decided. And it really doesn't matter that I can't see it. Yeah, that makes good sense. So in the last uh, minute and a half we have approximately, what are the lessons you you think your life uh, experiences, work experiences, we can learn from? Well, one, I want to go back to a myth that I shared earlier that I have since learned to debunk, and that is, I thought my blindness was a hindrance. I thought that I was going to have to settle for whatever I got. That has not been the case. My employment life is rich. It's fulfilling. Would it be different if I could see? I don't, I can honestly say I don't think it would. Um, I've had plenty of experiences. Some things have gone well, some things haven't. And everyone I've talked to who isn't blind has had similar experiences. So that's the main thing that I have taken away is that that 
that notion that I walked into college that I was going to have to settle has not proven to be accurate. I think another thing that I've learned is to be creative and to be open-minded to when people initially have fear responses about me or insecurities about how I'll do something and be more recognize that that's just part of their human experience. That doesn't mean they're out to get me or that I somehow am being, of course, there's still discrimination, but I don't have to immediately assume that's what it is if I'm hearing it. So talk about this creativity thing a little bit and uh, what that means to you. What does it mean to you to be creative as a blind person in, in the work, in the work capacity? It means that the first just because my disability might not work within the environment that works for everyone else doesn't mean there's not a way to make it work. I just have to think more openly. For example, that image that I gave you guys of the picture and the art therapy. Uh, yeah, I've, I'm not, if you had taken a sighted therapist, they probably would have a very different session with that client about their picture. That doesn't mean that my session's worse because I'm not seeing it. So it's just being more open to the fact that I need to think outside of the box and not just assume it won't work. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Brooke, for taking time to do this interview. And, Absolutely. Uh, and we will uh, switch roles, I think, now. Yeah. So Peter and I decided it would be fun for us to switch mid-podcast. So now... I am going to interview Peter. So our, I'm, my name is Brooke Jostad Still, and this is still Peter Alchol. Did I say it right? Yep, you did. I did. Excellent. And I am so excited to hear your story. You know, um, I got a sneak peek into reading Peter's resume, and he has a lot of incredible, incredible experience to share with us today. So Peter, can you start off and tell us a little bit about your early years, your growing up, where you grew up, and what, what it was like for you? Yeah, I was born totally blind. I have no light perception at all. I was raised in a, uh, in a community about uh, an hour north of New York City. Uh, I was mainstreamed throughout my school experience. Uh, I actually didn't really meet any blind people in earnest until I got my first guide dog after I graduated from college. Mm. So I, I really, you know, was totally integrated into the, what I sometimes call the light dependent community or the sighted <laughs> community. Um, and I spent most of my time in high school, uh, uh, actually, th uh, well, uh, throughout, throughout school, you know, obviously doing homework and stuff, but I was really fortunate that I had, I had a skill that I could hone that was really valuable, which in my case was music. So um, that meant uh, playing uh, piano, but more important for me was learning to play the drums because that was a skill that a lot of people really liked more than playing keyboard. And um, I got me a chance to march in the marching band. It got me a chance to play in various ensembles uh, throughout high school and later in college. And of course, I had to do the usual, you know, the usual high school course stuff and the usual high school social stuff, which sometimes was a challenge and sometimes wasn't, depending on the mm -hmm. circumstance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? When was it a challenge and when wasn't it? Well, when I um, was in uh, between my eighth grade year and my freshman year, uh, my mom decided to move me out of the uh, private school that she'd put me in, the local public high school. Uh, again, I was the only blind person there. And it was the, the school, uh, the private school I'd gone to was a, was a small school. There, you know, if there were 15 people per class, it was a lot. But, you know, then I, then I switched to a school where there were 160 or 180 people in a class. And it really took me a while to sort of adjust because a lot of these people had known each other since uh, grammar school. You know, they had gone to school together for years. And so it took me a while to sort of figure out how I fit in. And that's why being uh, a musician and playing drums was so important because it helped me find my niche. You know, in the marching band, I could... I, over time, I learned, uh, I, I met a lot of the football players and got to know a lot of them. Um, and of course, the band is, is a great community if, if you have a chance to do that, you know, because it's, you know, you, you rehearse every day, you get to, you, you get to 
especially in the percussion section where you really have to work as a unit because you're responsible for keeping the beat as people as we're marching. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a really important thing. And so you get to know these people pretty well. So once I got through my freshman year and, and maybe my sophomore year, I was, I was really pretty well. Um, I had, I was, you know, running with a group and, you know, I had a pretty, pretty decent social life. Okay. That's, that's good. And, and what, when you finished high school, what would you say were your opinions of yourself and your role in the world and your next steps? I was really too naive to think about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I got into a really good university and I figured, you know, I would be fine. You know, I graduated from this university and, you know, and I, I, I didn't even think about work. I mean, you know, I was, I, I didn't know what it, in some ways, I didn't know what it was like to be blind, if that makes any sense at all. Mm-hmm. You know, was, I was, I, yes, I had challenges and yes, I had to make uh, 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 adjustments. There are some courses I, I ended up not taking because there's just too much reading. And by, at that point, this was pre-ADA, so there was no disability services office. And fortunately, I had a couple of mm-hmm. people on the, in, on course, on campus, who really were incredibly supportive uh, and helped me sort of think through priorities. And for me, what was really important, of course, I want to do well academic-wise, but I also wanted to have a rich extracurricular activity uh, schedule. And so that prompted me to, to not to take some courses I might have taken otherwise, because it was important for me to, 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 uh, to socialize and to drink beer and to be in the marching band and to be in the orchestra and to be in the jazz ensemble and to, you know, to, 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 to have friends. And all the blind, uh, the blind folks that I had met previously, if they were taking these courses, all they did was study and read. And I didn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. I just wasn't who I was. So it was a balancing act. And uh, I think, you know, I think I did as well as I could under the circumstances. And I'm going to come back to that balancing act because it seems like you've really carried that on throughout your life. Um, But I, I think it's important and great that you verbalize that that for you it wasn't just about the academics you know as a millennial I you were saying pre-ADA and I my heart drops because I sometimes wonder what life would have been like pre-ADA can you talk about you know before Americans with Disabilities Act was implemented what was it like going through school it's a hard question to answer well actually it isn't it's an easier question to answer because I've taken a few courses post-ADA um, and so I took a, a, a creative fiction writing course, graduate school course. And, um, so when I got into the course, I called the disability services office, said, Hey, I'm taking this course. And they said, great, let us know what books you're going to be using and we'll get them accessible for you. And that was such a novel concept. You know, I, you know, you'll, you'll do what? <laughs> and sure enough, they did, you know, everything was there. I mean, it was totally awesome. And um, so it, 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 back when I was in college and in graduate school, I had to spend a lot more time um, uh, tracking down the professors, get, getting the syllabus, which many of them didn't have, you know, seeing what books were available and what books weren't, either through the Library of Congress or through recording with what was then recording for the blind. It is now learning, what's that called? Learning Ally. Learning Ally, um, yeah. And um, it was a lot more, shall we say, project management. Um, yeah. And, you know, negotiating all this stuff. But, you know, that was a really valuable skill for me. Um, and one of the things I, I believe that we pre-ADA folks, I think, can teach folks who came post-ADA, because essentially it's the same skills are still really important, uh, especially now with the technology being as it is. It's, it's so, as, as in your situation, a lot of it is inaccessible. And how do you make, how do you make those adjustments? And for me, it, you know, I've done it for so long. It was a nuisance, but I could handle it. Mm-hmm. So you didn't have any expectation that things would be accessible. So you just went for it. Basically. Yeah. I think that's, that's correct. Yeah. It's impressive. I, <laughs> I'm impressed when I hear that. Can you tell me about how you started to build your career after college? Well, when I graduated from college and then uh, I, I went to a, a music conservatory to get my master's in composition, I thought what I really wanted to do was to be a jingle writer, writing music for commercials mm-hmm. and also sort of doing pop song or production and so on and so forth. And I got a, 
uh, I got a recording studio and I, uh, you know, had a few people and I produced aspiring songwriters and, you know, tried to run around New York City and, and break into the uh, writing jingle business. And it turned out I just wasn't good enough. Uh, and I say that on two levels. One, I was good, but there were people who were just a smidgen better. And I could tell based on the music that they had done, you know, you, you hear this stuff. And so, and the other issue is I just, I, I'm not the best salesperson in the universe selling my skills. I've never have been. And you really have to have that skill almost with anything you do, but especially in that business. Um, so somebody had, had given me a really good advice, which was if you are not really successful within two years, you need to do something else. And I was mm -hmm. smart enough to take that advice. So I took the first job I could get after two years, which was doing customer service work for what I call the most hated government agency, federal government agency. Um, and that was such a dysfunctional organization that I thought there must be better ways of running organizations. And that's really what got me interested in uh, organization psychology. Uh, and, and that's what prompted me to, to sort of st steered me in the direction uh, that I, you know, that I currently do. So after the, uh, I got out of, out of that dysfunctional organization, I took another job at a, what I call a stodgy Wall Street bank, uh, doing more customer source work for a mutual fund, their mutual funds division. And um, they were going to outsource all their uh, folks to Jacksonville, Florida. And I lived in New York City at the time, and I had no desire to go to Jacksonville, Florida. And I really had no desire to do any more customer service either. And so I realized I needed to go back to school. And that's when I went to Columbia University to get what turned out to be a master's in social work with a specialization in workplace history, which, uh, workplace, um, workplace issues, which essentially meant getting the counseling skills, but doing all the, um, taking many of the same courses that I would have taken as an organization psychology uh, master's level candidate. So I got sort of the best in both worlds, which I'm very grateful for. Mm -hmm. Well, I wish I'd known you'd written jing jingles. I would have probably taken you up on that. But I appreciate that that history. So, so you learned a lot about what not to do from your first job, it sounds like. And then you carried that into this, this emphasis on organizational management. Well, it, uh, yes, I learned a lot about myself and how to, how to handle myself better in dysfunctional circumstances. Mm -hmm. And but I but I what really interested me was the whole area of this organization was so dysfunctional uh, that I really got interested in what makes an organization work well. Mm -hmm. That's really what got me interested in that in, in that direction. Yeah. So tell me about one of the things that I read about you is that you've done a lot of you've taken that a step further and done some mediation work. And so really working with people on opposite sides of the spectrum. Can you tell us a little bit how, about how you got into that? Well, when I got my master's in social work, um, I, of course, was looking for a job. And I got actually, I got a, a couple of consulting gigs because of the internships I had. And then I got a call from somebody I knew who said, there's a perfect job for you. You need to apply for it. And I said, yes, ma'am. And <laughs> the job was running a grant. Uh, uh, to encourage uh, university administrators and uh, employers to improve the way they recruited people with disabilities and, by definition, uh, other minority groups on college campuses. And this was right when the ADA was passed. So people were just getting interested in, you know, what the ADA meant and what, is it, what, it, what, what it meant for employers. And so um, I, I ended up running this three-year federal grant from the Department of Education, nationwide grant mm. to do just that. And, the, the, um, and basically, um, universities, administrators, and corporate types do not trust each other at all. They didn't then. They still don't. They don't really trust each other that, that, that they do good work. It's, it's, a, it's a really weird dynamic. And so that really started teaching me how to work with people from different backgrounds or different groups or different values to get them to work together more effectively. Mm -hmm. And so that, I did that work, and then I ran another grant, uh, getting school districts throughout New York State to use assistive technology more uh, productively. And that was at a time when many special ed teachers never even turned on a computer. 
So how do you get special ed teachers and administrators to talk intelligently with the vendors of technology mm-hmm. who had no idea how to teach people how to do this stuff? So that was another three-year grant that I ran. And then the sort of the, the, the climax of the work I did, sort of getting people to work across those differences, with getting working on a project encouraging pro-life and pro-choice activists to dialogue, and when they could, work on issues they could both agree on working on. And, and what that generally meant was teenage pregnancy prevention, adoption, promoting adoption, and toning down the language. You know, uh, you know when, whenever the issue of abortion comes up, all kinds of hostile language comes into the mix that just makes the whole conversation much more difficult. And so I worked with a lot of these folks throughout the country to do these things. Uh, and then after that, I, I uh, got more into the diversity field, which, of course, again, is uh, encouraging people to find that common ground. I did. Um, I helped Reuters America develop a diversity program, did some consulting work afterwards, uh, did some work in the arena of immigration, assisting organizations to get better at what they did uh, in the area of fundraising, as you said, in the way of employee development, in the way of um, uh, using technology more effectively and, and those kinds of things. Hmm. You've really been really active in a lot of those areas of communication and and bridging gaps. And I'd, I'd be curious to to hear, how do you feel like your blindness has impacted the work you've done? That's a really interesting question. Um, and something that I found really fascinating uh, and I've heard this from other blind folks who who do clinical work, is that sometimes people sort of forget that you're in the room. And this is especially valuable when I was doing strategic planning and, and, and getting people to have these conversations. And it was really interesting because um, I would sort of wander around from group to group and sort of observe and try to support when I could. And it happened so often where I'd sort of stand there and, and quietly and 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 I would say something and, and people say, I didn't know you were there. You know, and it's not as if I was standing in, you know, behind people. I was standing I what I thought was reasonably, you know, visible places, but people were so engrossed in the conversation that I think th- that and I think my blindness had an impact on that. I can't tell you exactly how, but I think that, you know, um I think they had some faith in me and they had some faith that that if I could do this kind of stuff as a blind person, they could too. In fact, I remember somebody saying, more than one person saying to me uh, in, in, in relation to my guide dog, and they would say things like, uh, you know, your guide dog is, you know, so cute. He's asleep. He's calm. Uh, you know, he doesn't bark. He doesn't do any of these things. If, if he can become these situations, then I can too. And, I, you know, I, I think there was, some, there was something, there's something to that, you know, and it's, I think I also uh, exuded a certain level of confidence that I could do the work especially when I got my feet under me. And I'm a pretty good educator also. I'm a good communicator and I got pretty good at addressing conflicts. And mm-hmm. once people see that you have those skills, they relax. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Can I ask you a little bit about kind of switching gears? Can you tell me about when you, in your spare time, when you weren't doing a lot of this work, did you, um, did you have certain hobbies that were informed by your social work or have your hobbies been pretty separate? They've been pretty separate. I mean, I, I've done um, some, uh, some work within the American Council of the Blind doing one thing or another. And some of the skills that I've developed in, in my professional work has really helped doing that work. Um, the Employment Committee uh, came out of my experiences um, in the diversity arena, my work mm-hmm. on the Employment Committee. Um, my work in Friends in Art, which is a group of artists uh, who are members of ACB, came, came out of my experience uh, doing music stuff. But it's been really helpful, you know, running meetings and things like that, uh, to have those skills that I developed in the, in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would imagine so. Um, what, in the last few minutes that we have here, can you share with me what advice you would give someone who's either discouraged in finding work or just starting out the first advice that piece of advice that comes to mind uh, i have two pieces of, of suggestions the first thing is actually three the first is it's hard uh and i i i don't want to sugarcoat it it's very difficult these days especially with the pandemic and mm-hmm. we have to be we have to 
not kick ourselves too hard if we fail because we are going to fail. Uh, it's much harder to get a job. The statistics are still pretty grim uh, as a disabled person than as a, a non-disabled person. So that's the first piece of advice I would give. The second piece of advice is um, be able and willing to tell good stories about your successes. This is a biggie. Um, what I find really um, disheartening is uh, employers want people to share their experiences and their successes and how they did what they did. And storytelling is a, is a really important skill, and we don't do enough of it. We don't teach enough of it uh, because um, employers really want to hear good stories. That's really what interviews, in, in my experience, are really all about when it comes down to it telling really good stories about your successes and your, and what you learn from your failures. Um, and then the other piece of the interview is really be prepared to ask questions about the job and about the organization. Mm. You know, doing the research really makes a difference. Um, uh, and I would really in, encourage that. And the final piece of advice I would give is, and this comes from my, I think from my, my pre-ADA experience, the technology that you're going to be using more often than not, is not going to be ex fully accessible. And the job I currently have, uh, a tutoring University of Missouri student athletes, is a case in point. You would think that you know it's well into the ADA that the th technology would be accessible, and in my case, it is not. So it 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 you really have to be flexible and work with um, supervisors or whoever to to make things work. Um, and you really can't expect. I wish it worked the case, but you really have to. You, you really can't expect that the stuff will be accessible. Uh, obviously you want to have as good computer skills as you can, but even with those, it's almost more important to, to, to have communications to be clear what it is you need and, and find out what they need and to find out and, and be good, be, be good negotiators. It, it really is an important skill. Uh, I think it's going to get more so as the career situation gets more complicated. Well, I really appreciate you sharing your experience. There's so much more I could ask you, and unfortunately, we're out of time. But I really appreciate you sharing everything that you have, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for the opportunity. You've been listening to Let's Get to Work, a podcast from the Employment Committee at the American Council of the Blind. Have questions, episode ideas, or feedback? Feel free to email Brooke Jostet, the committee chair, at B-R-O-O-K-E underscore J-O-S-T-A-D at Comcast.net. Until next time, work it.